and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and in this episode I've come to Port Cullis House, the base for Westminster MPs, to speak to the Labour MP for Birmingham Selly Oak, Dr Lynn Jones MP. Lynn, welcome to Just Plain Sense. Uh, according to your website, you've been in politics now for over 33 years. You've been an MP for more than half that time. You were first elected to Parliament in the 1992 general election, yet we also know that politicians in general get a lot of criticism. So can we start by talking about what attracts people like yourself, a successful research chemist, into a career in politics? Well, I don't think I was particularly attracted um, in in the way you describe. I was really sucked in. I joined the Labour Party by accident because I worked with a Labour Party member in the lab um, and then I got um, elected to the branch executive committee and then I went out canvassing in an area um, of a council estate which was very similar to the area I was brought up with and all the housing problems and at that time my big interest was housing so I suppose it was housing really that got me into politics and my only ambition really was to be chair of housing and I never had any parliamentary ambitions at all and, and you were chair of housing as well yeah I was but only for three years and um, I, would, I, I would have liked an extra year or so um, the experience of that though showed me that you can work very hard building something up and then um, overnight uh, you can be booted out and everything that you've worked for can be undone virtually overnight. Which very neatly brings us on to being an MP. How did you become an MP then? Well, I was actually um, expecting my second um, child at the time I was selected Um, and it was quite a difficult decision to decide to stand but I was approached by members of my local party who were keen to have um, a woman candidate Um, and we did have a a shortlist of five women although it wasn't an all-women shortlist it just happened that they shortlisted five women um, but uh, it wasn't officially all-women shortlist Um, and I very narrowly defeated the then um, um, your MEP, Christine Crawley, by less than you know, 0.01% of the vote or something like that. So it was all very um, close. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to actually win in 92. And um, it was a very strange feeling because I'd won uh, the Selly Oak seat, but we'd lost overall. And um, it, was, it was euphoria followed by sort of angst and disappointment um, but it, in the end it was probably a good election to lose because uh, it would have been a Labour government that had been faced with Black Wednesday and probably we would have only been a one term government instead of unfortunately the rise of new Labour but I think um, we were going to be elected in 97 irrespective of uh, the leader Moving on to 1997 then, um, there was a lot of hope and expectation at that time. People talked about Blair's Babes, the largest number, I think, of female MPs ever at that time. Um, But yet women still only make up a very small proportion of MPs, and it's it's estimated that it will be another 80 years before we achieve parity at the rate we're going. Uh, Do you think it can be resolved in our lifetimes? Um, Well, we've made huge progress from the the 92 Parliament to the 97 Parliament, and it was, I think it was 101 
uh, Labour MPs. I remember doing a sponsored swim, uh, and I did 80 lengths of the swimming pool, one for you know every estimated uh, woman MP that we were hoping to achieve. So we actually did you know better than than we had thought, and it did. There was a sea change in attitude. I mean, up until that point, there were no loos, for example, in the lobbies. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the member showers said members showers. So uh, it was just an assumption that you were, you know, we were all men, and that has, has changed. Uh, it, we, it went back again because there was a challenge to the policy of all women shortlists, but uh, that's now been reinstated. So I think we're starting to, to rise up again, and the Labour Party has a specific policy of earmarking certain seats uh, for women. And if there's a safe seat where a sitting MP retires, it's, it's allocated usually to a woman. Do you, do you think there's still more uh, systematic reasons why there are a few uh, women coming forward? Well, I think generally women tend to underestimate their ability and men tend to overestimate uh, their ability. But I think we now have got a critical um, number of women in the House and I think it is now... You know, normal for women to see themselves as potential MPs. So I, I'm fairly optimistic. I mean, where I'm less optimistic is that I thought that having more women would actually change um, the, the, the sort of need to climb up the greasy pole, I suppose. I thought that there would be more, women would be more principled than men, and I think I've been disappointed in, in that. Now, talking about principles, it's, I think it's generally agreed that you are very much your own person. Um, it's clear that you set out to be very loyal to the party, but again, then again, you're not afraid to speak out on unpopular causes as well. You've, you've been vocal about things like the invasion of Iraq. Do you see yourself as a rebel? No, I, I've never really seen myself as a rebel, and I get quite upset when I think certain people within the party think that you do it just for the, you know, the joy of being bloody-minded. Um, where I have voted against the government, it is on things that I've really felt strongly about, um, like the war, but perhaps earlier on, things like the cuts in lone parent benefits. Um, I was really distressed that a Labour government could actually, coming in in 97, that was one of the earlier changes that was, was brought in. It was, to be fair, it was a Tory proposal, and we just went, went ahead and implemented it too, and it saved £65 million on a budget that ended up being a billion underspent. And, um, you know, I, I do feel really very strongly, and, and things like more recently the 10p um, uh, tax rate. I was one of the few Labour MPs who supported Frank Field's amendment last year before it actually became an issue this year. And I often think that if the leadership of the Labour Party listened more to people like me, they would make fewer mistakes. So in a way, I think, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a loyalty to the principles of the Labour Party. I actually think that we've departed so far from um, fr from our core values, really, and, and it dismays me that the leadership of the party, and I think prominent politicians in all parties, can deploy contradictory arguments just to justify a particular policy. There, doesn't, there seems to be a lack of consistency. So how should elected politicians 
balance the sort of tensions we've been talking there between supporting the government and representing their electors. Does personal conscience fit into this somewhere? Well, yes, you, you, you're basically faced with several um, you know, pressures. So, obviously, you, you've got loyalty to the party, but then um, that's not just the National Party, that's your local party. And certainly, whenever I've rebelled, um, my constituency party, as was, the, the, the boundaries have changed now, uh, was always uh, supportive. So if you like, I was an appropriate Labour representative for the local Labour Party in that, in that sense. Then you've got uh, your constituents. You obviously, you know, you feel that you're there to represent your constituents and sometimes, as for example in the 10p issue, and um, you feel that um, you should represent those most disadvantaged within your constituency, even though, say, on something like lone parents, it wasn't necessarily a, a popular group. Um, and then you've got your own conscience, and you're all the time balancing those, those things. So I don't go out of my way to vote against the government. There are lots of times when I go in the lobby and vote for things that I disagree with, but usually it's on things that are just, say... Um, expressions of opinion rather than uh, votes that will really change things where I tend to concentrate um, voting if I need to vote against the government it's on legislation or, or where that vote could make a difference and, and when you've done that do you, do you think that's cost you in terms of career opportunities would you have liked to have had a, the chance at a ministerial role um, yes I'm, I think I'm quite a good um, sort of I, I, I enjoy running things, so that's why I particularly enjoyed being chair of housing and having a department to, to run, in, in effect, I did. Um, and I think that was the most fulfilling period, really, in my political career. So I would have liked to have had that opportunity, although being realistic... Um, I probably wouldn't have lasted very long because I'd have ended up having to resign over some point of principle. I suppose the big regret is that the Labour Party has moved so much to the right that I, who when I first joined the Labour Party was designated a right-winger because I was pro-Europe and pro-incomes um, policy, um, that, uh, that now those people who, who said you know, who, who used to accuse me of being on the right are, are now well to the right of me. And you announced last year that you'll be standing down at the next election whenever that is. Why is that you made that decision at this time? Well, there are all sorts of reasons. Um, one is that you get fed up of banging your head against a brick wall, I suppose. I mean, if I had seen that there was going to be a change in the direction of the party... Um, where I would feel more fulfilled by you know, supporting the, the party line, then I probably would have stayed. It's also clear that the next election is going to be much more hard fought and it would be like fighting in 1992 um, and all the elections I fought as a councillor where I always fought marginal seats. And I thought, well, I shall be nearly 60. Do I really want to spend that amount of time? And the difference between now and 1992 is that then we had lots of party members who were enthusiastic about campaigning. I'm afraid now uh, so many of our most active members have left the party and even those that remain have uh, very little sort of fire in their bellies, if you like, for campaigning. 
you, you feel that it's sort of becoming a bit too middle class? Well, no, not really, because my constituency has always been quite middle class, and a lot of our most committed members are middle class. I think, you know, I think this is wrong to to suggest that it's about you know differentiation between working class and middle class. I think there was a lot of solidarity um, in 1997, and I think people did expect the party to be. Uh, more left-wing than it actually turned out to be. We may not have had such a huge majority in 97, say, with John Smith as the leader, but we would have had a large majority, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I think, looking back, I think that's probably the worst thing that happened to the Labour Party was that we lost John Smith as leader. Now, if we can come back to some of the causes you've supported over the years, they're not necessarily the things which an ambitious politician would pick to future that further their career. Leylandi hedges, transsexual rights, for instance. How do you pick what to support? Well, I don't pick. I just, it just things just, you know, f- fall across my path, um, as it were. I remember when I was a candidate um, uh, in, uh, in about 1991. I was also a member of the police authority. Um, and at that time, we had all the scandals of the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad. And, you know, I remember speaking out and being quite critical of the police and also voting against the retirement of uh, uh, one senior police officer who, in my view, should have been disciplined. And I remember a colleague saying to me, if you want to get where you want to get, you know, you should keep your mouth shut a bit more. Um, And it never stopped me then, and I think it was wrong. Um, And it's never stopped me since. And one of the earlier campaigns I took up was the rights of two um, gay men, um, one of whom was an American. And uh, there was no right, no recognition of their relationship in terms of... um, immigration status and so their names were Brian and David and uh, Brian was threatened with deportation so I raised a debate on their case. I didn't get anywhere in the end it was fortuitous that Brian found out that he'd got a German grandfather so he was able to stay on the basis of um, German citizenship Um, but again I remember somebody a a Tory in Birmingham saying how brave I was Um, and again in terms of the the transsexual uh, transsexualism people have said how brave I am and I've never felt at all brave I just think it was the right thing to do and it hasn't been something that uh, I didn't think for a moment that this would be bad for my career as soon as I saw an injustice I thought you know it's my job here to to try and work to uh, end that injustice You got involved in 1994 with transsexual people. How did that actually happen? Well, it was actually earlier than that. Um, uh, Again, it was just the the situation crossed my path. I had um, somebody booked to see me at uh, one of my advice bureau, and it was was a man, and he was basically sussing me out um, because his partner was a trans woman, and she was very worried about being outed. Um, you know, she was holding down quite a responsible job and she was just scared that if it was found out that she was trans that she could be sacked. So he came to see whether I was likely to go rushing off to the news of the world and once he was and, and I have 
to say up until that point I'd never even thought of the issue and to be honest I had regarded trans people as somewhat freakish and you know not not a group I needed to be bothered with but then when I actually found out how discriminatory the law was and the kind of fear that uh, that people had that they would lose their job and their livelihood and be pilloried in the media it was something that I had no hesitation in, um, in getting involved in and um, the woman involved was in touch with uh, Zoe Jane Playden who, um, and it was through Zoe Jane that we, we started the, the Trans Forum So you set up the Parliamentary Forum with cross-party colleagues as well you had Alex yeah. Carlyle Yes, there, were, there, were, um, there was Alex Carlyle and, oh, I've forgotten his name, Roger, Roger something. Um, uh, he was a Tory. Um, so th- there was one for each party. Um, Roger, I think he lost his seat in 97 and I think he subsequently uh, died. And, of course, we know what happened to Alex um, Carlyle. And uh, there have been one or two other MPs who, who come and go. We've got um, Joe Swinson is involved at the moment, who's Lib Dem, and, um, and Simon Hughes. But we haven't actually got um, an, an actual Tory supporter. But I have to say, when, we went, when the gender identity bill went through... Um, Parliament. There was some really good, really good support from um, Conservative MPs such as Tim Boswell, um, and I think there's just been a huge change of attitude um, since 1994. And it's largely, I think, as is the case with all discrimination, it's actually about people who are brave enough to put their heads above the parapet and say, you know. I'm one of those people that you're talking about and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just an ordinary human being. I just want to get on with my life and be treated with respect just like you. And as a result, you know, society has changed greatly. And I now think this morning I was actually attending, um, well, I was chairing part of a, um, a seminar on uh, mental health. Um, and, uh, and yesterday we published a, uh, a mental health in parliament report and I think that mental illness is now really the, the last great taboo of people you know, being unwilling to talk about an experience of, of mental illness so uh, that's if you like that's my uh, well I, I've been involved with mental health issues for a long time because I chair the all party group um, on mental health and uh, my father suffered from schizophrenia so again I think we will only really make the the progress that we need is if we can get people who've suffered from mental illness talking about their experience and that uh, you know is, is something that's started to happen and I hope that that will continue so are you saying there that there's something to be learned by the way that trans people conducted their campaign? Because that, that took a long time, didn't it? Over ten years to get... Well, it did, and, and I mean, when you look at the government, although it now will claim credit for um, the Gender Identity Act, for example, they were dragged kicking and screaming through the European courts, you know, to get there. Um, but, and that's because individual trans people actually took action um, and increasingly, I mean, when the earlier case took, took place, people wanted to keep their identity confidential, but more and more people were actually willing to, to, to come out. And as in um, the, the discrimination on grounds of sexual orientation, there's no doubt that it's 
their action in actually being, say, I'm, why should I be ashamed of uh, who I am and actually being prepared to actually say, you know, proud to be gay, proud to be trans or whatever. And, and, and I think if you, if you look at mental illness, those people who, you know, have got their condition under control, who are, are recovering uh, and, you know, who have completely recovered, they, their actual experience of mental illness actually makes them, um, you know, gives them a lot that they can add to, to society. And I think that, um, you know, that we, sh we should recognise that often, you know, experiencing of, of adversity and, and overcoming them is actually very valuable and society should actually welcome the contribution that people like that can make. Because there's, there's a huge amount of uh, undiagnosed or untreated low-level mental health issues in society like depression and anxiety. Well, that's right. Our, our survey of mental health in Parliament, um, we, we came out with the figure about one in five MPs had had an experience of, of mental illness. And nobody so far is really willing to, to talk about it, but we've put forward you know, various recommendations which we hope will make it easier. Um, I'll be writing, for example, with the other co-chairs, one from each of the main parties, to the leader of the three main political parties to ask them to join in a compact that... Um, that if a politician actually is open about having an experience of mental illness, that this will not be used against them by their political opponents. So if we can create a more welcoming environment where having a particular condition is not associated with inadequacy, um, then I think we will, be make, we will make progress. And, and that's happened in other areas, of course, because we've, we've confronted the reality that, uh, of alcoholism in, in, in party leadership and, uh, and people coming out as gay or lesbian as, as MPs as well. And, and disabled um, members of Parliament, see David Blunkett and Begg. So, you know, we started off talking about women, so now it's acceptable for women to be members of Parliament. It's acceptable for disabled people. Be, we, haven't, we haven't yet had a, a, a trans um, member of, of Parliament, but we've got gay and lesbian MPs. And uh, perhaps before long we'll have p people who are being able to be open about having a mental health condition. So, in a, in a way, because I was going to ask you about people coming to Parliament on, on, a, sort of, on, a, on a minority ticket and, and thinking about that's how we achieve a more diverse Parliament. But in a sense, you're saying that it's happening through people coming out of the woodwork anyway. Yes, well, I, I'm sure that probably the numbers of gay people within Parliament is probably fairly representative of the of the population at large, probably better representative than, than women in many ways. Still, some of them don't actually want, you know, want to be open um, about it. Um, but why not? Um, I, you know, I think we talk a lot about having you know, the good old days, in, but actually, in, in, for many people, society has never been more welcoming than it is today. And if we were thinking about, say, a, a young uh, lesbian girl or a young trans woman uh, thinking about a career in, in, in uh, Parliament, uh, how would they set about planting the seeds for a political career like yours? 
Well, generally speaking, I'm afraid you have to join a political party. I mean, I started by organising the jumble sales. So, you know, um, and, and work your way up. I, I think that's the best way to do it. Of course, there are increasingly people who, um, you know, they, they start deciding they want to be politicians and they go do politics at university, they get a job working for an MP or in a think tank or something like that and then become an MP. I, I, I don't think that's the, the best way of doing it. I think people should get experience of life in other, in other fields. And uh, I, never, I never thought I would ever be an MP. It wasn't something you know, I had any ambition to do. But it's been a fantastic experience. I, sadly, I haven't had the experience of being in government, but this job does give you so many opportunities. You, can, you meet all sorts of people, you know, from presidents um, you know, to, to just having the opportunity just of going into out-of-the-way places and meeting ordinary people in other countries. And, of course, in this country, you know, people invite you round to their house to see their, you know, their repair. You, 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 you got from going to visit magnificent palaces and seeing the president to actually being welcomed into ordinary homes and being able to communicate at all uh, levels and uh, I, I don't think there's many other jobs that give you those kind of opportunities. Well, that very neatly brings us to my last question because I, I've got a feeling that in a sense that then that's going to be a great big hiatus when you step down and retire. Are you going to have a quiet retirement? Um, well, I don't know. We've, I've, uh, a lot of my time I'm actually going to spend in mid-Wales because we have um, what I call our hovel in the hills, uh, which we've had since 1980, but it's an off-grid and um, uh, we've got our own wind generator and photovoltaics and uh, there's still a hell of a lot of work to be done there. So I'm quite excited about the idea of sustainable living. My big interest these days, um, as well as mental health, is climate change. Um, I'm on the governors of our local mental health trust, so I want to keep uh, doing, you know, ha being uh, involved with, with mental health issues. And uh, I'm involved in a campaign um, in the area I live uh, about sustaining Birmingham, that is, on sustainable living. So, and I want to do some travelling as well. I've got a self-denying ordinance at the moment um, not to, to fly on short trips um, in term for, for, for leisure um, use anyway um, because of uh, you know, the, my concern over, over climate change. So the idea of doing a sort of... Um, train trip across Europe and a bit of cycling as well. I'm a keen cyclist and I've just bought myself a power-assisted bike um, for the hills of Wales. So I think that I'm going to find plenty to occupy myself. And some things are just, you know, taking all the pressure off, but actually taking up one or two issues that really are, I feel are important and trying to be active in those. Whereas, whereas as an MP, you tend to be, you have, you have to know something about everything. And it'd be nice just to be able to concentrate and really, you know, get myself a, as an expert in, in those two areas. Lynn Jones there, speaking to me at Westminster. Well, the Conservative MP whose name neither of us could remember at the time was Roger Sims, 
who represented Chislehurst in Kent from 1974 until his constituency ceased to exist as a result of boundary changes at the 1997 election. Lynn also mentioned Alex Carlyle, who in the mid-1990s was the Liberal Democrats' Home Affairs spokesman. Alex later became a peer and, as a member of the House of Lords, he's most associated with his role as an independent reviewer of Britain's terrorist laws. As a practising barrister, Alex also famously defended Princess Diana's butler, Paul Burrell. That brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense, and, just as the MPs are all now going off on their summer holidays, we'll be taking a summer break too. Don't forget, however, that there are almost 40 episodes to catch up on if you've recently joined us. You can either listen online at podcast.plain-sense.co.uk or, if you're an Apple iTunes user, simply search for Just Plain Sense in the online store. All podcast downloads are free, of course. So, as I take a few weeks rest, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. And just a reminder, as always, that Just Plain Sense is a production from Plain Sense Limited.